If there's live action Fantasia, who'll play the broom? Should I put a tenor on Orlando Bloom? Before we begin formal proceedings, Helen, I have a quick Disney World clarification to make of the kind that you will really struggle to pretend you give a shit about. (laughs) Are you sure it's going to be quick? (laughs) Because from what I gather, people are very, very steamed up in extreme detail about the issue you're about to raise. The feedback has been extensive but I think it can be dealt with quickly. Uh, You will recall in the last episode, Matt from Austin asked me about a ride at Epcot that featured animatronic scenes depicting farming in the future. He thought it was Spaceship Earth, and indeed it might have been, Mm -hmm. for reasons I dealt with in the episode. But anyway, as you suggest, Helen, (laughs) literally dozens of you (laughs) have been in touch with quite detailed emails. Quite detailed. Quite a lot of detail. To say that Matt might have actually been remembering the now permanently closed ride Horizons, uh, which opened in 1983, closed in 1994, and amazingly was originally called Future Probe. <laughs> what? When, when did its name change in its short lifespan? Uh, that was at the uh, drawing board stage, but I think they were quite far into the build before they decided that it might be problematic to have a family attraction called Anything Probe. Especially in the 90s when people were so into the idea of being probed by aliens. <laughs> In the bum, usually. Yes, Martin, in the bum. Thanks. It closed in 1994, but it opened in 1983. So I don't know if probing was so big then. But Matt said he went to Disney World in 1996. So Ah. how could he be remembering Future Probe Horizons? Ah, well, okay. I I really Mm. don't want to return to this feedback again. But I mean, as I say, (laughs) I did deal in the episode with the fact that it might have been Spaceship Earth he was remembering, and it might have been. But equally, if he got his dates wrong, then as all of you say, it might also have been Horizons. Can we leave it at that? Because it's the memories of one man. We can't really validate it. We've never even met him. And even when we were reading his question, Mm. you had to mark Matt as an unreliable narrator of his own life. Quite right. Some of the facts already didn't check out. So all we know is there's a guy called Matt who's been to Disney World at least twice. Yeah. And went on some rides. Anyway, in much more serious feedback, we have this in from Meredith in Canberra, who has a microwave cookery suggestion for Georgianne in Washington, D.C. Oh, yes. Georgianne, who only has a microwave and a fridge at her disposal in her rental room for the next two months. Yes. Uh, Meredith says, there is hope. Yes. I like to get into... (laughs) We all need hope. His name is Jesus. Praise be to God. How'd you cook Jesus in a microwave? That's not nice. (laughs) Been through a lot already. I like to get into work early, she says, and I can do wonders cooking breakfast in our office kitchen. Meredith, you nightmare. Everyone comes into the office and it stinks of egg because of you. In the office kitchen, they have a microwave, a toaster and a sandwich press. All you need. Last year, a few of us did an office breakfast on the last working day before Christmas and I made Eggs Benedict for eight of us. Using the microwave. That's impressive. Also, that is high summer in Australia, the the last working day before Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the butter will just melt itself. Uh, She says, I have a foolproof microwave hollandaise sauce. And then she sent us the link, Helen. I've looked and it does involve a handheld electric whisk. Uh. So I'm not sure again that that really is something that Georgian has access to. Eggs Benedict, a, a really a tricky thing to get right because you have to have the hollandaise ready at exactly the right moment and the poached eggs ready at exactly the right moment. So whatever appliances you have, it's a tough dish. Meredith continues, 
You can poach eggs in the microwave using either a purpose-built poacher or just by cracking an egg in a mug of boiling water and microwaving it. Now, is that true? I'm very impressed if so, especially if she manages to get eight done for the same serving time. I cooked baby spinach, she says, by putting it in a colander and pouring boiling water over it. Now, that's just... (laughs) I mean, of all the ingredients in her eggs benedict, surely the spinach is the easiest one to microwave. The microwave's busy with the eggs and the hollandaise. Couldn't you line a small cup or bowl with spinach and then crack an egg into it and poach it that way and then cook the spinach at the same time very watery oh that's a good point alternative foolproof recipe buy a bag of crisps and eat those (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if you can get eggs benedict flavor crisps you probably can somewhere in the world oh probably martin bought spaghetti bolognese crisps the other week and uh, you wouldn't think that that could be powerfully disgusting and yet They're they're sweeping the nation in uh, New Zealand. The smell filled the room, so it probably is sweeping the nation. (laughs) I thought it was quite good. (laughs) Nasty. Hello, Helen and Ollie and Martin the Soundman. My name's also Helen, and I have a mate called Ollie, but not one called Martin. I was wondering about scratch cards. See, I just bought a scratch card in the newsagent, and I was thinking, they have all these reels of scratch cards. How How do the newsagents pay for them, and what stops them just going through and scratching all the scratch cards and then taking a scratch card that wins like a million pounds to the neighbouring newsagent and saying they were just a customer. I mean, do they pay for them one by one or do they just sort of get... How does it work? If you could cover the cost of multiple scratch card purchases by simply scratching them all, then no one would work for a living. (laughs) That's what everyone would do. And the National Lottery wouldn't have a business. So clearly despite the fact you might win small prizes along the way and you've got a small chance of winning the big prize, the whole process is designed so that overall you would make a loss so that they mm. make a profit. That's how it works. Also, does it not cost the news agents to have these items? Yeah, they've paid for the scratch cards and they make a profit on the sale of each one, but only 6%. Oh, really? Well, that's sensible, because if the, the wholesale price was a lot cheaper than the retail price, they could go like, oh, well, okay, like it doesn't make sense for punters to buy a thousand scratch cards but it does make sense for a news agent who's getting like a 50 percent discount to buy a thousand scratch cards yeah i think they pay a pound for the scratch card that they sell for a pound and then later they claim six percent back from camelot at the end of the right. year for all the cards they've sold for that reason <laughs> i did though see a blog in which someone did buy 500 scratch cards just to see what would happen <laughs> wow she actually won 301 pounds oh so she lost 199. That's gambling. Um, which is about the ratio that I'd expect. <laughs> That's gambling. Because the chance of winning a prize is usually about one in four. Mm-hmm. And obviously that is what's advertised. But clearly the one in four is not the chance of winning the jackpot. They don't advertise what the odds are on winning the jackpot. Even if you go on the Camelot website, you don't find the odds on winning the jackpot. You, you find out how many jackpot prizes there are and you have to do the calculations yourself. Right. Um, and it's really hard to work it out. And... It could well be that the jackpot has already been won because there's not an electronic uh, display in the newsagent, is there? So you're you're still chasing something that was won two months ago. That's quite possible. I think that is on their website, but who the fuck checks the website? Okay, that's another question. How long can the newsagents keep a particular kind of scratch card? Can they sell ones that are like eight years old? Yeah, I believe so. Because, yeah, the jackpot hasn't changed, has it? It's a, it's a analogue mechanic. Um, so I don't see what the issue with that would be. But like I say, you'd be wise to check online to see whether the prize has been claimed. And now, of course, they're trying to get people to do the online scratch cards, which removes what? surely the only pleasure in scratching a card, which yeah. is getting the little silver dust all over your Yes. 
<laughs> Outrageous. How does that work then? Do you scratch your phone screen with your thumbnail? You probably just tap it, don't you? But isn't it funny, like, even though it's exactly the same company offering exactly the same product, somehow when it's the card version, there's an authenticity to it. Like, if you trust them that there are £5 million prizes... You genuinely don't know until you scratch it off and it's physically in your hand, it was made in the factory. It's the Willy Wonka thing, isn't it? You could have the golden ticket. And yet when you're on the internet, it's exactly the same. There's just the same odds that they're going to give that one to you randomly on the computer. But you don't trust it as much, do you? I think that's the thing with physical objects. There's a a presence and automatically you trust that more than something that is virtual. Yeah. And also there's a limited supply of the physical object, whereas the online version could be infinite. Uh, here's a question from Amelia, who says, Helen, answer me this. Who first designed those little round pin cushions? You know what I'm talking about, Helen. Oh, yeah. You know what she's talking about. Round yeah. pin cushions. They're usually about the size and shape of a satsuma, with brightly coloured little people arranged all around the edge. Yeah. And I think they're filled with sawdust or something. I do know the things she's talking about. You you keep pins for sewing and stuff in them, do you? Is that the right. idea? Yeah, because when you're sewing, you often don't have time to take a pin and put it in a box or something. You need to stab it into a cushion. And also some of them have um, sand or um, sawdust in and you put the pin in and it gets sharpened by that. So there's a function ah. as well as cushionality. That's clever. I wish they mm. did something similar like that for DIY. Or like a screwdriver cushion. Yeah, because very often when you're like trying to nail something into the wall... Like, well, I say when you, as if this is everyone's experience. I'm terrible at DIY. So when I try and hammer something into the wall, I get through five nails that all bend and break um, and make a bigger hole in my wall than I was intending to. Mm. And those are the ones that I then have to do something with. And I've got kids, so I don't want to put them on the floor. I've got the kitten wandering around now. So I have to like put it in my back pocket and then I might sit on it and get it in my ass. I would like a DIY pincushion for those nails. Uh, what about a blob of blue tack? Yeah, I suppose so, although then it looks like a voodoo doll, doesn't it? That's a useful secondary function. Oh, you can get magnetic pincushions, which is just, it's not really a cushion. It's just a pincushion-sized magnet, and you could get one of those for your nails until you have time to safely dispose of them. Uh, So Amelia says, who makes these weird little things, and why has something so surreal and specific and complicated endured? I've got really awful news, and it is that I spent hours, hours, trying to find the answers to these questions and I couldn't. It, I am devastated. I, I know that these pincushions go back to at least the 30s because I saw them being sold on antique sites uh, with that attribution. Mm. And there are some which where they're saying it's Chinese babies holding hands and somewhere it's like, this is from Japan and it's sumo wrestlers holding hands. But okay, as- well, just before you go any further, do they, because I can't quite visualise this, do they look... Asian? Do they look like they could be Chinese or Japanese, the characters? Well, it's their faces are pointing inwards and they're sort of done on a stereotype so the sumo wrestlers will have the high hair. So yeah, sure. But also the fabric is like Asian silk. Okay, so it's, it's legit that it might come from that part of the world then? Oh yeah, I think okay. it does come from that part of the world but I can't find out why that design is a thing. It's a very common pincushion shape because um, it lacks weak spots and also you can pack it like really dense. So another very common pincushion design 
is a tomato that has a little strawberry dangling off it and people are on the internet are up in arms. They're like, why is it a strawberry? You never see a strawberry growing out of a tomato. <laughs> and the strawberry contains the emery for sharpening the needles. There is no place for whimsy in my very serious world of sewing. But then there's this very pervasive myth that I can't really get confirmation on that the reason why the tomato ones exist is because in the mid-1800s, it was considered good luck to put a tomato on a mantelpiece in your house to ward off evil spirits or something. Okay. But a lot of people didn't have access to real tomatoes or they would rot, so they would make them out of red fabric. But that sounds like bollocks to me. I think it's just a tomato is an easy shape to make out of red fabric and put pins in. Do you think that's where the squeezy ketchup bottle came from as well? <laughs> to keep Not away just a fun plastic shape spirits. in a 50s diner, but to keep away evil spirits. Yeah, well, now I do. So, okay. So, all right. You've, you've got far enough to say maybe it's from Asia. <laughs> yes, I think it's actually from Asia, but I wonder whether it is catering to a westernised taste for orientalist knickknacks. So that would explain the sort of boom in popularity in the early 20th century. I just wonder in all of your hours of Googling whether at least you've managed to determine a name for this object no. rather than just thing, <laughs> pincushion Not thing. even. Sometimes it's like Chinese baby pincushion, sometimes Japanese sumo wrestler pincushion. And there wasn't even like a subreddit about pincushions where people discuss this in detail? There's a lot of pincushion chat about the tomato pincushions, let me tell you. I went, <laughs> I went deep cushion that day. <laughs> I also found ads for a 1940s pincushion, which is like a little statuette of Adolf Hitler with a pincushion for his bum. Apparently President Roosevelt had one because he thought it was so amusing. Where are all the comedy pincushions now, eh? I bet there's Donald Trump ones. Oh, yeah, you're right. Bet there are, especially on Etsy. I bet that's someone's livelihood, making Donald Trump pincushions. I don't even need to Google it. I know it is. I know it to be true. (laughs) (laughs) I got a question. Email your question. To answer me, this podcast at googlemail.com. 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 Here's a question from Jonathan from Exeter who says, Ollie, answer me this. Is the yearly Blue Peter appeal still a thing? And what is the highest amount it ever raised? The annual Blue Peter uh, appeal is no longer an annual event, no. Um, Although uh, it was revived last year for the 60th anniversary of Blue Peter. But the Blue Peter appeal, it's hugely influential amongst fundraisers today because it did a lot of things for the first time. It started in 1958, like a good 20 years before anyone had really seen a telethon before. Um, And it also looked at now seems quite ahead of its time because it was very democratising. It wasn't just about kids contributing money to the show to help other children in need around the world. You could contribute things like bottle tops or stamps, Mm. which feels, to me, very 2019. Like the whole concept of A, recycling, and B, sort of everyone democratically being able to participate in the same way, in some small way, to contribute towards a target so that they're on board with the idea, even if in reality it's going to be you know, a handful of big donors that are going to make the difference. That's exactly how fundraising happens now, isn't it? But also it's very powerful to get children involved 
because children can pester their parents and also every time they see a bottle top they can be thinking about a charitable cause yeah it came out of uh, Billy Baxter this sort of legendary producer of Blue Peter who was on it for like 40 years looking one Christmas at all the toys lying dejected and unused around the studio one year because they used to do you know it's a children's magazine show so come Christmas time they'd basically do here are the toys you can pester your parents for this Christmas yeah and she looked around in 1958 at the toys they had lying around and just thought, why don't we give these toys to poor children instead of telling our middle class children who are watching what they should get for Christmas? And that was where the concept came from. It was like, next Christmas, let's do a campaign where we get everyone involved in giving and try and spread that message. Also, the totalizer, again, something that you're really used to seeing on telly now, the idea of having a goal that you're aiming at, like Kickstarter as well, because it's really influential. <laughs> You've got this chart and you can see at the top what they're aiming for. So that's like the big thermometer where they would colour in a bit more for all the money that came in. Blue Peter essentially invented that and also invented the idea that the target at the top isn't the real target. <sighs> so they'd have a target at the top of, like by the 1980s, let's say at the top it said 100 grand. Yeah. But then when they got to 100 grand, there'd be a second totalizer that went up to 500,000. And it's because uh... kids you know, don't want to hang on for two months to reach the target. But the psychology remains whatever age you are, doesn't it? Like, you want to reach the top, and you're only going to reach the top if you feel it's got momentum. Yeah, and also people are more inclined to give money to a thing that's already demonstrated that people want to give money to it. Yeah, exactly. Classic Kickstarter techniques. But anyway, to answer uh, Jonathan's question directly as to what is the highest amount it ever raised... Uh, that information is quite hard to come by. I have even contacted the BBC Children's Press Office wow. for an answer on this. <laughs> and uh, basically they said, they've got a live show today. They haven't got time to answer your question on that. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, but the press officers gave me some information about the history of the Blue Peter Appeal. So this is all they have ready to hand. They don't know the answer as to what's been the most successful appeal ever. But they do know that across the 49 Blue Peter Appeals... Uh, they've raised the equivalent of £100 million in today's money. But that's a bit of a fudge stat, isn't it? Because obviously, what does today's money mean? They've obviously worked out with inflation and everything else. Yeah. And it's kind of complicated. So the only fact that I can find from a charity's website online, and obviously some of the charities Blue Peter was supporting in 1958 no longer exist, but from an individual charity online boasting about how much they raised through the Blue Peter appeal... The best example I can find is Sight Savers. Mm -hmm. In fact, so successful was the Blue Peter appeal for Sight Saver in 1986 that the charity that had previously been called the Royal Commonwealth Society for the Blind actually changed its name to the name of the appeal, Sight Savers. They raised £2 million in 1986. Wow. From bring and buy sales. Wow. Yeah. Original target of a hundred grand, and then they did thirty-two thousand bring and buy sales around the country. I suppose bring and buy sales though, the overheads are low because you're not paying anything for the product and you're outsourcing it aren't you it's not like yeah. the bbc had to pay to rent the village hall like you're saying to kids ask your teacher if you can use the space then bring along all your old shit so it, it costs the bbc nothing they just get the the income but there's no outlay for the products either so that i suppose is people's yes. uh, contribution as well isn't it i told martin something the other day that really upset him which is when i was about five I went to a bring and buy sale in the local village hall and I found one of my toys for sale there. And I said to my okay. mum, how did this get here? And she said, I thought you didn't want it anymore. Ooh. But she hadn't asked. Devastating. What was the toy? A soft toy of a tortoise made out of like brown canvas. It wasn't very soft and cuddly. It was just a big round tortoise. I think it was on for 50p. Do you now credit her with telling you the truth? Uh, well, I don't 
think she had any other options. Because she could have just said, oh, that's not your one. You've got one a bit like that, but it's not that one. Yeah, the thing is, it definitely was that one because it was an unusual creature. It wasn't the kind of thing where all of your friends had one. It was a brown canvas toy tortoise. <laughs> Probably with some 70s patterns on the shell. I sort of secretly take some of Harvey's toys to the hospice shop when I drop him at nursery on a weekly basis. And he hasn't noticed yet. Don't take him in there to buy toys then. Although if I did, I would just say, oh yeah, you've got one of those. But I guess it wouldn't be a canvas tortoise. It's things like an early learning centre plastic telephone. Yeah. Which in itself is a telephone box, which we don't really have anymore. So he doesn't even know what the object is supposed to be mimicking. That doesn't work because I couldn't change the batteries because the screw's rusted. (laughs) And so you think, he's not enjoying this. But actually, like, a baby who's not bothered about whether or not it makes a noise when you press it and doesn't know what the object is, it's just a shiny lump of plastic, for 50p would probably be distracted by that. It's things like that. But if it knew that I was giving it away, I mean, we wouldn't be able to leave the house, you know. I suppose what you could do is you could have a kind of halfway house for the toys. So the ones that you think he doesn't care about, you remove from his room. But if he asks about it, then you've still got them so he doesn't feel like you've betrayed him because you haven't taken it away permanently. A kind of purgatory. Right, exactly. And if he hasn't requested one of the uh, toys in purgatory for a month, then you can take it. Purgatory. Purgatory. <laughs> this is the plan. The 14 bring and buy sales have raised the equivalent of an estimated £57 million. Pounds. Uh, other items collected by the appeal include over 948 million stamps. Wow. 19 million aluminium cans. What do they do with the cans? And over 1.4 million pairs of shoes. Wow. Including David Beckham's boots. I presume that was a celebrity donation rather than child David Beckham setting them in and then bothering (laughs) to recognise that years later. Uh, Between 1962 and 2010, the appeals raised money to buy, amongst others, two guide dogs, 25 lifeboats, eight flats for homeless people, 32 ponies, 57 lorries, three caravans, two day centres, six bungalows, 12 houses in Romania, three schools... And 8,350 what, Helen? 8,350 mosquito nets? Oh, that's such a good guess. Wells? I mean, it's not actually close, but that's... Uh. Oh, my God, you're you're on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Toilets. Oh, brilliant. But you were really close, I think, with mosquito nets and wells. Like, toilets is in the middle of that Venn diagram, isn't it? I just went a little too far. That's very impressive. How many stamps to build a Romanian school? Yeah, that's the bit I don't understand. How did they convert the stamps into cash? I know the stamps have a cash value. I mean, it's not very efficient, really, is it? No. And the bottle tops, when when they were doing that, collect bottle tops or ring pulls or whatever the fuck it was. Yeah. Do they melt that down? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm an influencer. You want to be who I am. You envy everything on my Instagram, but it's all stock photos. My life's a total sham. I can't even do yoga. But I'm a real health expert. I use Squarespace. All my photos and advice are all in the one place. And I built a store so you can buy into my taste. $8 smoothies. <laughs> Thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. And making it easy for you guys out there, everybody, to build a beautiful website. Everybody, yes, (laughs) please build a website that's not shit. 
Um, if you want to make a website, they make it easy for you to find photos co- to accompany your blog. They make it easy for you to sell your products through your store page. They make it easy for you to market your website on Google. I mean, basically, there's nothing they haven't made easy. And so if you have an idea for a website, but you've been dragging your heels despite listening to us talking about Squarespace since you were born, go to squarespace.com answer, have a go on the two-week free trial, and then when you sign up, you can get a 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain using our code answer. answer. And to the person who wrote to us saying, oh, I've been listening to Answer Me This for ages, and now I'm going to get a Squarespace website, but should I be using your code? Because yes. I listen to some smaller podcasts that I might want to support. Ooh. Or what about the show that I first heard the Squarespace promo code on? Which one should I use? Like, fuck off. Don't write to us and ask, should you deny us? Yes, use our code. I get people saying, should I use the answer me this code or the illusionist code? I can't answer that question for you. Follow your heart. Here's a question from Mike from Jersey, who says, I love the character Sherlock Holmes, but it flabbergasts me that some of Arthur Conan Doyle's stories describe him as a regular user of cocaine. Ollie, answer me this. Was this considered normal in the 1890s? Yes. Was cocaine different or less potent a century ago? No. Or would Holmes's drug use be as scandalous to the original readers? No. What's the deal with Sherlock Holmes and the cocaine? <laughs> it was pretty normal, yes. I mean, Victorians took cocaine for toothache and common cold, and that's because medicine was expensive yeah. and there weren't regulations, and they didn't realise how addictive cocaine was. They only discovered it in that era, didn't they? There's a fairly short window of them discovering it in the late 1800s and then the 1900s realising it caused a lot of psychosis. But it was in the Coca-Cola, wasn't it, famously? Yeah, basically what happened is it comes from the coca plant, right? But importing cocaine then was tricky because the plant didn't travel well. Right. They hadn't worked out to mix it and preserve it. Uh So what happened in the middle of the 19th century, a French chemist called Angelo Mariani invented a wine called Vin Mariani, which he sold as a tonic wine. They sold it as a health supplement. Mm-hmm. It's There's hilarious like posters with angelic children on it and stuff for this wine. <laughs> and Vin Mariani was 11% alcohol and 6.5 milligrams of coke in every ounce. That's like uppers and downers in one. It's basically a Jägermeister and Red Bull, isn't it? <laughs> That's what it is. Whoa. And uh, that is what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was personally on. He was into Vin Mariani, um, not just him, but uh, Ibsen, Zola, uh, Jules Verne, Alexander Dumas, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson supposedly wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde during a six-day cocaine binge. They were all drinking and snorting Vin Mariani. And, and actually not just authors and artists, but like Queen Victoria and the Pope at the time were into this. And then what happened is in America they had prohibition. Mm. And so uh, Coca-Cola came out of a version of a kind of American tonic wine that was developed in response to prohibition. They took the alcohol out, but they kept the Coke in until 1904. Right, and then they replaced the Coke with caffeine, didn't they? But in any case, in terms of Sherlock, it wouldn't have been shocking because it's A, something that the audience understood, and B, it's a way of accounting for his obsessive genius isn't it he's a little overstimulated seeming sure it explains why he keeps working through the night why he keeps persistently and doggedly you know uncovering the same clue that everyone else has missed and finding something new in it because even though they didn't understand the addictive qualities of cocaine then they knew that cocaine i mean i've never taken it but essentially seems to keep you feeling like you haven't taken anything even though everyone can see that you have and you go a bit manic and you just keep going and going and going that's what Sherlock's doing, isn't it? I suppose if you were writing it now, you might have him on Adderall yeah. or something like that. 
I think conversely, it's hard for us to understand in the modern day how things like um, absinthe then, yeah. they were considered to be destroying society. Yeah. Well, so was gin, wasn't and it? gin. I mean, just the availability of cheap spirits. Yeah, but absinthe in particular was like a really trippy... Uh, we have another question of literature from Becky in Ilkley, uh, who says, I recently reread Jane Austen's Emma. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you recently reread Jane Austen's Emma? I haven't read it for quite some time because it was never a book I hugely enjoyed because I found it, um, I have read it a few times, but I found it increasingly nihilist. Uh, I think because Emma is so privileged, uh, she has nothing really to fill her time except for making everything worse. Mm. And uh, I found that hard to return to with pleasure. Well, I have recently re-not read it. I've watched Clueless many times over the years, so, you know, I feel like I've, I've still got the plot fresh in my memory. <laughs> and Becky continues, uh, It struck me for the first time reading it this time that Mr Frank Churchill's aunt seems to die at an awfully convenient moment and quite unexpectedly. Mm. Uh, this is how uh, Austin writes her death in the novel. <clears throat> Though her nephew had had no particular reason to hasten back on her account, she had not lived above six and thirty hours after his return. Six and thirty hours, that's a day and a half, isn't it, in posh words? Uh, A sudden seizure of a different nature from anything foreboded by her general state had carried her off after a short struggle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Becky says, This sounds to me highly suspicious. Moreover, Mr. Frank Churchill is at that time in a pretty desperate position as regards his engagement to Jane Fairfax. She has threatened to end their engagement. I sound like one of the Radio 4 announcers introducing the Archers. (laughs) She has threatened to end their engagement and go away to become a governess. He receives this news on the day of his aunt's death. The death of his aunt means it's all back on. Is that really a coincidence? Helen, answer me this. Is Mr. Frank Churchill a murderer? This is like when you see one of those YouTube videos that has taken like the trailer to a classic rom-com and put a menacing soundtrack over it. And you're like, <laughs> oh my God, it is a horror film. Yeah. Just really cast the book in a different light. Um, I should recap what is happening with these characters. Or just cap. Right? Because in Clueless, there's not a direct analogue for these people. Sure. Frank is sort of Christian, the guy she fancies, but he's gay. But there's no Jane Fairfax and dead aunt business happening. So what it is, right... Frank Churchill is Emma's friend's stepson, but was brought up by his aunt, which was pretty common in Jane Austen's time. So if one of your siblings was rich but childless, you'd send one of your children to live with them and be raised as their own child. Mm -hmm. So he's back in town to visit his father. Jane Fairfax is an orphan, also in town, visiting her aunts. And she's not rich. So now that she is of adult age, she is soon going to have to either get married or become a governess which she doesn't really want to do. Which in in Austin world means stakes are high. Right, stakes are high for Jane. Jane and Frank are secretly engaged and it's secret because Frank's aunt wouldn't approve of him marrying a poor person. Uh, The aunt is in bad health, so they are waiting for her to die so they can marry. So this is what the quotation means when it says of a different nature from anything foreboded by her general state. It's saying she was ill anyway, what killed her doesn't seem to have been related. Yeah. And then to throw people off the scent of the secret engagement, Frank keeps flirting with Emma and sort of teases Jane about crushes Jane doesn't actually have on other characters. And Frank talks about going abroad for two years. So Jane is upset. And then there's this scene where everyone goes on a picnic and it's all very shameful. And Emma really fucks up after that. Jane ends the engagement. She's got this governess post 
Frank goes home to visit his aunt and three days after the breakup, his aunt dies. So he has motive and he has opportunity. Or did Jane Austen just really need to wrap the plot up and so just remove (laughs) the obstacle to Frank and Jane marrying? So taking Frank out the picture as a potential suitor for Emma so that Emma realises she's meant to marry someone else. Well, you see, the thing is, because of the lightness of touch in her writing, because, as you suggested, this is essentially a romantic comedy... Like, it's the equivalent of if Bill Pullman's character suddenly died in Sleepless in Seattle, isn't it? We're not supposed to care about this character. It doesn't matter. I think both of the things you said are not mutually exclusive. Like, both things can be going on. She needs to wrap up the plot. But also, Frank Churchill could be a murderer, and it's deliberately left as light because that's not the point of the book. It's a comedy, so who cares? So actually, I I, I think it's, it's not a straightforward answer. The point is, yes, it is possibly implied, but through such a lightness of touch that we're deliberately not meant to care about it. Also... The book is full of kind of riddles and puzzles and allusions and she wouldn't really be overt about it. And also apparently at the time, murder literature was not such a thing either. Mm. Like there's no violence really in her books overtly. Also, Frank Churchill is a bit of a dick. So um, maybe she doesn't want to be like, God, this guy is a real dick, but she does want to imply that he's a shady dickhead. Okay, nonetheless, Helen... um... You know, we have been asked specifically, not is Mr. Frank Churchill a dick, but yeah. is he a murderer? I mean, you know, <laughs> pick a side. Okay, well, I read a very interesting academic paper by Leland Monk, uh, published in 1990, uh, where the murder theory apparently was first put forward. And uh, he makes a very persuasive case. And he kind of puts together a courtroom scene as if uh, someone is cross-examining Frank and then quoting Frank from the book in that context. <laughs> Wow. I also read another theory from someone else on the internet suggesting that Frank kills his aunt because Jane's pregnant and so they need to hurry up and get the marriage happening. And, in conclusion? I think if I were going to reread the book now, it would be because I thought it would be a bit more interesting to look out for clues of Frank being a murderer. But do you think so, he's yeah, a murderer? Sure, why yes, not? okay, fine. Yes, yes, why uh, not? I mean, no, not really. <laughs> Is that good enough for you? But he, yes, but not really. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> I think either he's a murderer or Jane Austen really can't be asked with this plot. It's like when D.H. Lawrence has just had it with a character and he's like, oh, they were sat on by a bear. <laughs> you know, some really abrupt bullshit death. Yeah, like Drew in Neighbours. Yes, exactly. Frank Churchill's aunt is Drew in Neighbours but off screen. Yep. It had an omelette station, a multitude of pools, but 30 quid for parking, WTF. Four-star hotel. There's Ethernet, not Wi-Fi like it's 1998, but there was a swim-up bar in the rooftop pool. Three-star hotel. A bit more down to earth. They did still have a pool, but it was full of kids. Two-star hotel. A lot more down to earth. They also had a pool, but it was full of dogs. One-star hotel. There's a body in the pool. Answer me this holiday. All the fun of travelling with none of the stinky toilets or frightening food. Out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums. If you want more fantastic Answer Me This related content, then you can go to answermethisstore.com and you can buy episodes 1 to 200, each for a very reasonable price. And you can buy our five exclusive albums, content of which you will not hear elsewhere. And those are one hour of Answer Me This content about a theme. So 
at this point of the year, you might want Answer Me This Sports Day for all the Wimble sport and foot sport and That's right, athletic yeah. sport and all the sporty sport that tends to happen in these months. Also, you can support the show financially if you so choose to do. There is a button that just says donate. I mean, I'm just just saying. It's better than sending your bottle tops. We do not know how to convert those into <laughs> money. Hi, it's Alex from Sheffield here. Um, dear Helen Ollie, please answer me this. How do you clean a sieve? I have one of these metal mesh sieves. Whenever I try to clean it, there's bits of rice and food and whatever it might be stuck in between the tiny little holes. Uh, I've tried going over it with a, a brush, hot water directly onto it, cloth, brillo pad thing. It just, none of it seems to really properly work. I'm very familiar with this problem. Say if you're sifting flour for a cake. Yes and there's any kind of dampness on the sieve, then um, that flour is going to set and stay and stay. But then, you know, you think, well, that's just a bit of sieve seasoning. Maybe that, that can stay around. Is that so bad? This is my philosophy with barbecue, certainly. Yeah, scorch off the dirt. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I've got a barbecue cleaning brush. But even so, once I've given it a very uh, cursory brush, I do leave lumps of meat hanging off the grill because I think, well... That'll add flavour, won't it? Bit of a snack for next time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and I think really it's it's almost the same, isn't it, with a sieve? I mean, what it depends what you're sieving, I suppose. If you're using it instead of a colander, mm. then you could be in dangerous territory because you get a bit of pea stuck in it or something. It's probably not good. But if you're using it as intended for things like sugar and flour, what's the problem? Get over it. Wow, harsh words there. Harsh but fair? I've done the Googling that Alex fears to do Mm. and i'm not sure that any of these solutions are gonna revolutionize his sieve cleanliness solutions as in answers rather than liquids things dissolved in liquids yeah well possibly i suppose he could put something in so powerful that it rots the wires of the sieve and that would solve the problem in a way this seems to be a pretty common tip wash it immediately don't leave the stuff to get hard and grow crusty sure some say boil it in a big pan of water others say simmer it don't bring it to the boil, but simmer it in water for half an hour with detergent. Others say pour boiling water through it to loosen the stuff and then scrub it. So just sticking it in water as if you're sterilising it doesn't itself dislodge the stuff. It just loosens it. Yeah. What do you then need to dislodge? Because Alex says he uses a brush. I would say to Alex, what brush? Well, you, apparently you can get a special sieve brush. There you go. You want one with quite tough bristles, or some people suggest a toothbrush, like a firm bristle toothbrush. That's what I've used in the past. Wow, and it's really got I would say, that desperate. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, it, it's just not, it's never concerned me. I found the answer within myself. I was like, I've got bits of things stuck in the mesh. Right. Toothbrush, it's a bit like teeth. It's important to wash it upside down first. Ah. So convex side up first to not further embed the stuff into the sieve. You can use a power hose. You can get an ultrasonic cleaner. Hold on. What's an ultrasonic cleaner? That's something we're going to have to get from NASA. It's like a water bath that uh, vibrates and the vibrations get carried through the water so anything you put in it gets vibrated as well by this high, high frequency. Are you shitting me? Yeah, we used to use them in the lab all the time. I keep getting adverts for them on Facebook. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Just, just, just stop talking about this like this is a normal thing. Are you honestly saying people get the kind of scientific equipment you would expect to see in a laboratory to clean a sieve? What's wrong with people? What do you mean? What's right with people? It means you're not putting detergent in the water supply. But what, I mean, how much does it cost for an ultrasonic cleaner? Bearing in mind a sieve costs a pound. Like 20 quid? 
But if you bought a new sieve every time your sieve got dirty, <laughs> then it would add up to more than 20 quid. Fine. I'd still say a £3 sieve every five years is not that wasteful and might be better than buying a laboratory piece of equipment. That's my view. Well, you can use it on other things. Like what? So, like, it's, it's quite useful for washing things when you're travelling and you don't have a washing machine. What? <laughs> but, but how big is it? Small. It's something like the size of a, a coffee cup that you put into a sink full of water and it does the vibrations. Ah. You don't okay. put things in it. So it's a gadget that brings the power of ultrasonic cleaning to right. any bowl of water. There you go. You love gadgets. Now it's in language you can understand. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit weird, but it's a bit like dryer balls. You know, those things you put in a dryer that make the clothes drier, allegedly. Two plastic balls with spikes on. Yeah, the, the way you said it was, you didn't say dryer balls, you said dryer balls, which is a different thing. That's right. Thing. I, I've deliberately so. <laughs> right. Nonetheless, the product is called dryer balls. Here's a question from Andy from Birmingham, who says, Ollie, answer me this. For as long as I can remember, I have sneezed every time I get an erection. Only ever one or two sneezes, and then I go back to behaving normally. Very different, of course, to my experience, which is every time I sneeze, someone else gets an erection. Andy says, this has never made any sense to me, as surely my penis and nose can't be connected in any way. Oh yeah, there's just a a space Mm. between Andy's chin and his pelvis. Your nose and your penis, Andy, get ready to have your mind blown. (laughs) Not your nose blown. No, it's too dangerous for him. (laughs) Both contain erectile tissue wow and there is a link uh it is a medical quirk known as sexually induced sneezing and it is a phenomenon that was noted as early as 1897 i'm sure people noted it earlier than that but didn't quite dare explain what was going on um and it was written about in the 1901 publication anomalies and curiosities of medicine Right. When I was at school, I'd guess about the age of 13, there was a boy in my class called Ian, and his fun fact was that when you sneeze, you have one-eighth of an orgasm. Yeah, oh, everyone heard that fun fact. Right. But um, I'd, firstly, I don't know how you would measure the yeah. fractions. How's that quantified? But secondly, maybe it was physically a little more relevant than I'd assumed. Yeah. Now, there is uh, some serious scientific endeavour to look into this. I know this, by the way, because we've we've covered it on The Modern Man. It's not because I suffer from this particular complaint. There is nothing less horny than me sneezing. I did uh, see reference to a study in 2008 when a bloke who contributed to the study, his marriage ended because he kept sneezing at dinner parties, which indicated to his wife that he fancied the participants. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's that a very Roald Dahl adult story <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. Um it kind of makes sense why you've got erectile tissue in your nose because it does need to engorge, doesn't it, when you've got a cold and you need to expel fluid, which is a similar function. Does it need to? Well... It doesn't feel more turgid in the way that uh, an erect penis does. There's a less obvious alteration in state. Fine, but, I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is blowing your nose hard is a bit like an ejaculation of snot, isn't it? But I'm not sure that's comparable given that you're more conscious of the muscular process that is leading you to expel the snot than, I assume, the um, jism. <laughs> okay, well, I, I did just compare it, Helen. I did it. I went there. Okay. So there you go. I'll take your word for it, then. There's a link. So don't worry, Andy, you are, uh, you are experiencing a medically documented phenomenon. Martin uh, sneezes when he eats an extra strong mint. I do. Martin, do you also come? I mean, I don't want to say, because then when people see me eating mints and sneezing, <laughs> they're going to judge me, aren't they? 
Only if I crunch them. If I if I just suck them in, it's fine. But if I crunch them in, I immediately sneeze. My niece Isabel sneezes when she eats chocolate. What a thing the human body is, eh? I'm an Antimedus fan. I listen with my nan. She is not so keen. She finds it too obscene. I follow them on Twitter. Though Ashton Kutcher's fitter. I want to take things further. Just one step short of murder. I want to look like Ali Man. I want to smell like Ali Man. I want to be like Ali Man. I want to chase like Ali Man. I want to look like Ali Man. I want to talk like Ali Here's a question from Millie in Twickenham who says, My husband, baby daughter and I are currently house-sitting for a lady called Sarah who's currently in Australia. Mm -hmm. She has a very old dog who we're also looking after. So you could say, if you were being more efficient, you are house and dog-sitting. Right, okay. I'll read that again. Mm -hmm. My husband, baby daughter and I are currently house and dog-sitting for Sarah who's currently (laughs) in Australia. Yeah, that was quicker. Thanks. Since Sarah has been away, the dog has become quite ill and Sarah's put us in contact with Rebecca, the dog's previous owner. Why would you do that? The dog's ill. So get in touch with the previous owner of the dog? I assume it's so that you have someone who knows the dog and might be able to understand more about what's wrong with the dog or how to comfort the dog when the dog's distressed, that kind of thing. Okay. Has experience of the dog's health and well-being. Rebecca came to collect the dog the other day and my husband answered the door Rebecca mistook him for Sarah's son, Hugo, and was chatting to him about when his mum was coming back, etc. My husband's quite shy, and so didn't correct her, thinking that he wouldn't see her again, so it was harmless. Oh, sure. It's just harmless, isn't it? Fraudulently behaving as if you're someone you're not. This is how farces begin and then go for five acts. (laughs) However, says Millie, the dog has got worse, which means a lot more contact between Rebecca and inverted commas, Hugo, who she now thinks is married with a young baby when the real Hugo is actually in his last year of university with no current offspring as far as we know or a partner. Mm. Rebecca also happens to be in contact with the real Hugo via a group WhatsApp. That's weird. Well, you would think she would know a bit more about Hugo, therefore, if she's on WhatsApp terms. Exactly. Group WhatsApp terms, no less. Like what he looks like. Well, he's roughly the age bracket. But what's the group? We all know this dog. Ollie, answer me this. How does my husband tell her who he is without making it awkward? Or does he have to live his life as Hugo now? What not awkward scenario is this? It's already awkward. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that this has come to a head now because I I do sort of say, it seems ridiculous to say when she knocked on the door and mistook him for someone that it was harmless to carry on and pretend to be a person in retrospect. But at the time, I do sort of see, particularly because she may have been distressed because the dog was ill. I can sort of see how you just don't want to get into it and you think this is the only time I'm going to see each other. But now that it's escalated, no, you cannot continue your life being the person that she's actually in contact with on WhatsApp separately. That's just really, really weird. So yes, of course you have to say something. And I wonder if using the context of the distressing situation of the deteriorating dog is the context that will help you here. So rather than fronting up to what actually happened, which is that you were too shy slash embarrassed to say anything you pretend that the reason you didn't say anything was because you thought she might be confused because she was distressed about the dog and you didn't want to disrespect her feelings or you could say oh sorry i misheard when you said are you hugo and i thought you said are you peter (laughs) or whatever his real name is yeah but when she says when's your mum coming back 
what then? Mm. What did you miss here then? Like, they had a five-minute conversation in which the context was clear as to who she thought he was. She might even suspect there's a piece of the puzzle missing, but she won't be able to say for sure. And it, it, it kind of holds up as a story, doesn't it? Would it be possible for Millie to handle interactions with this person? And then when Rebecca says, oh, where's Hugo? You could say, oh, uh, well, he's at university. Oh, did you mean my husband? Oh, no, that's, uh, that's not Hugo, that's John. And so the woman will think it's her error rather than the husband's error. Perhaps. Do you remember years ago, we had a question from a guy who used to take his kid to nursery school and he was the only male parent who was doing the drop-off and people were all saying, oh, where's your wife today? Where's your wife? And he was like, she's dead, just because he didn't want to answer the questions. (laughs) And now his wife is like, why hasn't anyone contacted me recently? I'm guessing they're not still married. (laughs) I feel like this is one of those situations where I realise that Millie's husband was trying to be polite, but his falsehood is sort of inexcusable. Yeah. I suppose it is funny that it was uh, the direction he chose to go in. But I feel like it would almost be easier for him just to pretend not to be alive than, than to actually address it. Or pile on the extra lie and say that actually your name is Hugo. So that's where the confusion arose from. But then what about his mother? When when you said, are you Hugo? I, yeah, exactly. And then I thought you were asking about my mother. Who coincidentally is also in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Well, listeners, this brings us to the end of another episode of Answer Me This. And for there to be future episodes, please deliver your questions to us in the form of emails or voice recordings. And our contact details are on our website, answermethispodcast.com. And in the meantime, why not make space in your ears for our other projects? My podcast, The Modern Man, tests out trends and offers sex advice and has a middle feature interview each month. And this month, I went to New York City to meet a private investigator who specialises in busting fraudulent psychics. That's like shooting fish in a barrel. If you can't prove psychics are real, how can you prove that they're frauds? Mm. I, I, go, I go into all that. I asked him, why is it any different to like being an evangelical church who's you know, preying on people's vulnerabilities? It's based on a, a belief system, right? So what's the problem? Um, and his answer, actually, like he was absolutely straight down the line. His answer was, if the church spends, it, say they're going to raise the money for the roof and they spend the money on the roof... That's not fraud. It doesn't matter whether or not Jesus exists. The issue with the psychics is what they're saying is, give me £50,000 and I will cure your cursed womb. And they go and spend uh... it on their house extension. So that's the thing. There's no you, you can see that what they say they're doing with it isn't what they're doing with it. That's why it's fraud. That's why it's illegal. And yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And you can find that at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, Martin, you have a podcast too called Song by Song. Uh, well, I'm also doing a musical project uh, called Pale Bird, and I'm putting a, a podcast every week called Year of the Bird, in which there's a new song. I wrote 40 songs in 2018, and I'm releasing them roughly one a week in 2019. For one moment, Martin, when you said you're doing a musical project, I dared to believe you'd written something for Broadway. There's 40 songs. That's a hell of a jukebox musical. Helen's excellent podcast is called The Illusionist, and it's available at theillusionist.org. And if you're listening to this on time, then you might just be able to catch us on tour in Australia, the last couple of shows. And as we previously mentioned, we have a wealth of content for you to spunk your wealth upon. Uh, You can download our first 200 episodes and our exclusive albums at answermethisstore.com. There will be a retro Answer Me This taken from the vaults uh, in your feeds halfway through the month, but there will be a fresh new Answer Me This on the first Thursday of next month. So please return then. Bye! Bye.